0: Father, we do thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to pay the full price for our sins. Thank you. Thank you that uh, he willingly came and bore our sins in his body on the cross and paid it all. Thank you. And thank you, Lord, that death could not hold the sinless, spotless Lamb of God and that he rose from the dead and is at your right hand uh, coming again. Lord, thank you. And Father, I thank you that uh, you've given us your word to feed us, to help us grow in respect to our relationship with you, and I pray that we would do so today, that you would use your word to teach us, you would use your word to reprove us, that you would correct us, and that you would train us in righteousness, that we would be uh, fully equipped and and adequate. Uh, for every good work lord thank you that that's your desire we pray you fulfill it in us today as we hear your word in jesus name amen well if you are a believer in jesus christ uh then you are a servant of the living god you see, like we saw in First Thessalonians, they recognized they were saved to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols. The reality is before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we serve ourselves. And uh, we serve by default Satan, who is the ruler of this world. And that serving always ends up in disaster, temporal uh, trouble and difficulty and evil, and then ultimately death and the second death. But yet God was gracious to deliver us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now we've been saved to serve a good master who gave himself for us, who will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, uh, if you think about it, we are all ministers in some way or another. And you think of that word minister, you know, it kind of has an interesting connotation, speaking of maybe only pastors, whatever it might be. But in the Bible, every time that word minister is used, it comes from the Greek word diakonos. It means servant. It means servant. That's what it means. And uh, we are all servants of the living God. Now, unfortunately, there are those who think that there are full-time ministers and part-time ministers and whatever it might be. When the reality is, if you're a Christian, we are all full-time servants of the Lord. We're full-time servants in whatever sphere he has called us to and gifted us in. And so with that, uh, we recognize that we are in full-time ministry in a sense uh, at our homes as we serve by by loving our spouses and our children, whatever it might be. We're in full-time ministry at work, whatever it might be. We're full-time ministry uh, at school. We're in full-time ministry as we go into the world. We're servants of the living God. Now, if you've truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will have the desire to obey him, to do the right thing. Now, we have our own desires that get in the way, and we have the temptation from Satan and our flesh. But by and large, we want to do the right thing. And if you want to do the right thing, and you start to do the right thing, you start to obey the Lord, there's going to be times where you realize that you fail in doing what He called you to do. You trust Him. You believe that He's called you to do something. You believe it's clear in His Word, but yet we fail. Well, how can we keep from failing in what God calls us to do? Well, I felt prompted to continue our little mini-series in some of these highlights from Matthew back when we went through the whole book back in uh, 2009. And so, uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, And we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 21. And we're going to see Jesus' gracious instructions for his faltering disciples. And I believe we're going to learn from that how not to fail in in what he calls us to do. Now, I'll give you a, a caveat before we get into the message. Oftentimes we fail not because we're wanting to do the right thing or doing the right thing. We fail because we're doing the wrong thing. Now, that's not what this passage is talking about, and we can talk about that some other time. Uh, We're very good at failing in other ways. We're very good at sinning at times, and that's not what this is talking about. This passage will not help you in that. Uh, We need to just confess and then turn and obey the Lord. But when we do the right thing and we fail, and we're trusting the Lord and we fail in that, uh, we're going to see that the Lord God might want to expose something in our hearts that will help us. Uh, do what is right in those circumstances now in the book of matthew king jesus has come upon the scene he is the king of kings and lord of lords god has took on human flesh he has come to his own people the jews who were sitting in darkness and he has manifesting the truth manifested the truth concerning their situation their sinfulness and salvation in him which comes through repentance and faith in him and it's been over two and a half years that he has been ministering to these Jews. And at this time, the Jewish people have hardened their hearts and closed their eyes and plugged their ears concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are unrepentant. And yet they are still seeking to gain the stuff from Jesus. And Jesus would say to them that they are an evil and adulterous generation at this point. And indeed, we've seen the religious leaders have begun to reveal their hatred and jealousy for Jesus, desiring to destroy him. And so the Lord moves his ministry from the multitudes uh, to speaking in parables, but also training his disciples. And we see the things that happen past these points really focused on training those who are truly his, his disciples. Then in chapter 16, we have a turning point where after revealing the wonderful truths of the nature of the church that would be brought about in him, he turned his attention to his disciples to reveal to them his imminent crucifixion and death and resurrection from the dead, specifically that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers and die and be raised on the third day. And it's in chapter 16 we see Peter going from blessed to satanic in a blink of an eye as he relied on his own understanding and his own will and understanding and rejected the word of God that Jesus spoke. Jesus said he had to go to the cross, and Jesus said, no, it shouldn't happen. Well, Peter, still being a believer, was speaking satanically because he was thinking man's thoughts, not God's thoughts, and Jesus reproved him. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And when we do that, we get in trouble too as believers. And we set our hearts on the things of man rather than the things of God. And so Jesus uh, then at that point reveals that those who desire to follow him must deny themselves. If you want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And then allow Christ to live through them. You see, you've got to give up your old life, and your old life was full of sin and on its way to judgment. And when we allow Christ to live through us, there's joy, there's peace, there's love, there's kindness, gentleness, all those things. But he said, if you're unwilling to give up your sinful life, you may profit the whole world, but you lose your own soul. And they would be judged when the Son of Man came in his glory. And then as we had read earlier for us, The Lord Jesus reveals himself in glory to Peter, James, and John on the mountain. The disciples got a preview of what he would look like when he came back in glory. And we see the reality of the Old Testament law and prophets personified by Moses and Elijah testifying and speaking to the Lord Jesus at that point. And then we have the testimony of the Father from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased listen to him. And so at this point, we have these three disciples in the inner circle coming down from this mountaintop experience, uh, trying to grasp the reality of what the Lord had said concerning his death in light of what they had seen. And it's at this point that brings us to our passage today, where again, I believe we're going to see how we can keep from failing in what God has truly called us to do. Now, I'm not talking about what we think God has called us to do, but what he has absolutely declared in his word is his will for us. So with that in mind, again, let's turn to Matthew 17, and let's look at verse 14, and I'm going to read the passage. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And is very ill. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting and so how can we keep from failing in what god calls us to do notice first of all we need to recognize when we do fail in what god calls us to do it gives nonbelievers a platform to mock the lord jesus christ concerning us you see when believers fail in their marriages when believers fail in raising their kids because of sin whatever it might be it gives it gives uh, nonbelievers the the opportunity to mock believers and to mock christ but what about when you're actually doing the right thing in those areas and you're failing? What about when you're doing the right thing? What do we do? And it speaks of all the areas, whatever it might be work, uh, school, uh, just going out in the world, whatever it might be. Notice what happens here as the passage begins verse 14 and when they came to the multitude now remember this is the context is the inner circle jesus has taken peter james and john up to the mountain they have seen his glory and he has told them not to reveal it to anyone until after he rises from the dead and they're coming down from the mountaintop and and the disciples who had been left behind evidently were ministering and something happened while they were gone while jesus and and peter james and john were gone now we're also going to look in mark chapter 9 which has a parallel account And, and remember the gospels although they are parallel they're not the same in in their content because each one has a different intent Yes, it's totally true. It's like looking at his accent from different perspectives. It's the same accent, it's the same situation, but sometimes people pick up on certain things. And the Lord inspired these writers to share certain things for a certain purpose. And so let's take a look in Matthew chapter nine, or Mark chapter nine, and Matthew uh, seventeen. So Mark chapter nine. This gives us some more information. Mark chapter nine, verse fourteen. And when they came back to the disciples, that's Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, they got back to the rest of the disciples. Uh, Notice it says, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? So we have a little more insight in the book of Mark. There was an argument between the scribes and the disciples. Now, the scribes, uh, they were the religious leaders, those who were learned in the scriptures, by the way. They hated Christ, and they wanted to trip him up and destroy him. And so Jesus asked them, what are you discussing with those scribes? What's going on? What are you arguing about? What's going on? So here's the scene, illumined for us in Mark, Now back to Matthew says, and when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him falling on his knees before him saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill for he often falls in the fire and often falls into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Here we have a man with a a demon possessed son, as we'll see, coming up, asking for help. And he basically says, hey, you brought him to your disciples You weren't here, but I brought him to them, and they couldn't actually cure him. And then look back in Mark 9, too, because we get a better idea of what's going on here. Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, some of the scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked, what are you discussing with them? And one in the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. That's really the, 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 the picture here. Evidently, this situation of this demon-possessed boy and the disciples not being able to cast out the demon was causing an argument with the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes here. So we have a desperate dad who petitioned the disciples to heal his demonically-possessed son, and they couldn't do it. And then we have the scribes attempting here, in the context of the way they've been, to, to blaspheme the Lord, because of their inability to do what Jesus had said they were able to do. And you say, where's that? Well, look back in Matthew chapter 10, because we see very clearly the Lord gave his disciples at that time the authority to cast out demons. And they're going to say to him later, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do what you called us to do? I'm sure they believed that they could do it in him too. I believe they had the faith, but we're going to see about that. Matthew 10 verse 1. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Okay, how about, uh, I think it's in, we'll look look in uh, Luke chapter 10. Take a look at that, Luke chapter 10. Now this is speaking of the 70 that he sent out. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents, scorpions, upon the power, all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. Rejoice that you're saved. Don't get things mixed up in your head. And so then, they had been given the authority to do that. In the authority. And so back in our passage, we have a cruel situation. Uh, verse 14, Matthew 17. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him falling on his knees before him saying, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic, very ill, often falls into the fire and into the water. Now we hear him saying this here and then we see what he said in Mark. You know, just because it's this here is something that seems a little slightly different in Mark doesn't mean that both those things weren't said, but one author is pointing to one aspect. Another is pointing to the other aspect inspired fired by the Spirit. And so we have this guy falling on his knees, petitioning Jesus for mercy. Mercy. He's helpless. Helpless. And the Gospel of Luke even uses the term only begotten. It's his only son. It's his only son. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic, very ill, for he often falls in the fire, often into the water. Have mercy on my son. He says, Lord, Kyrios." Now, this could be used to speak of someone in authority, a master or Lord. It was also used extensively to speak of the I am, speaking of the Lord himself, referring to Christ. So what does he want his, Jesus to do for his son? For he is a lunatic, he is very ill, for he often falls to the fire. Why is he employing him for mercy? The term lunatic here was spoke of one who was an epileptic, possibly, or one who had a mental disorder. It comes from the Greek word moonstruck. And it spoke of those in that day that thought that the moon had effect on people's sanity. That was their, their, their view and their culture at that time. It's where we get our word lunatic also. And so he's very ill, often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now again, Matthew does not give all the details because that is not the point of Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is not the point. The real point in Matthew is to address the issue of faith. Mark has a different point, but we gain more understanding as we look at both of those portions. The demoniac boy is not really the issue here, that that part. It's the lack of faith which is the issue in the book of Matthew, and that's why there's less spoken of in Matthew. But we do have what's written in Mark, and let's take a look at that again. Because the boy is not simply an epileptic. He is not simply one who is a lunatic. Those are certainly realities. Yes, he's this way. But there's something more going on. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, He said, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth. And stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. He brought them to the disciples because they represented the Lord. I brought them to you, but he really didn't. He brought them to the disciples, didn't he? Now he's speaking of demonic possession. Now demons are fallen angels. They are spirit beings. They are angels who sinned and fell when Satan fell. Satan took a third of the angels we see that in in revelation chapter 12 now for time's sake i'm not going to get into it but we do see that demons can inhabit those who are not saved they can possess them and they can hold them under wicked control now we never see and we know it cannot happen believers being possessed by demons because when you trust in jesus christ as your lord and savior you receive his spirit in you as a pledge you cannot be possessed by a demon when you have God's Spirit in you, but yet you can be affected by it, as we say. But as we know, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you. That's God's Spirit, and then is he who is in the world. And we see in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 and 12 and 15 other passages of scriptures where people are demon possessed, and they can be possessed by one or more demons. Remember the legion of demons who possessed a man in chapter 8 of Matthew. And although we see in scripture those demon possessed are not in their right minds, they can also be violent, unpredictable, exhibit super strength. They have physical ailments, as we see in our passage, uh, such as deafness and dumbness and blindness or combination of whatever it might be. Now on a side note, demon possession does not always manifest in physically destructive ways or, ins- or outright insanity. You think, hmm, really? Remember, Satan entered Judas and he was in his right mind from a human perspective when he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for money. He was able to have a conversation. He wasn't foaming at the mouth. He wasn't out of his mind. But he was possessed by Satan, doing Satan's will to deliver over Jesus Christ unto crucifixion. So then, the reality is demon possession for those who have rejected Christ or have not come to him is real, and it can be manifest in a severely uh, horrific way or it can be manifest in a severely devious, demonic way. But as we will see, only Christ can deliver one and does deliver anyone who is in the domain of darkness if they come to Jesus Christ. So in our passage... Uh, we have uh, this uh, this child, and remember, children can be possessed by demons. By the way, we see it in Scripture, back in chapter 15, verse 25. The lady says, "The Gentile woman, have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David, for my daughter is cruelly demon possessed." That's the reality, okay? And so we recognize that uh, those kids here don't play around with the demonic stuff. Don't play around. You see, everyone is in the domain of darkness, whether possessed or not. But when you come to Jesus Christ, we receive his spirit and we are delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are transferred, we are protected then because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But if you reject Christ, you may find yourself someday in a place you never thought you would be either destructively or cruelly possessed or insane or or whatever it might be, or even worse, sane in a sense, but deviously fulfilling Satan's will of lies, slander, and murder. So then back in our passage, this Jewish father is in total agony. His only son is cruelly demon-possessed. Back in verse 17. Let's look at Mark again. I'm sorry, Mark 17. Mark 9, verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth, stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. Now, on a side note, uh, people don't want to admit this these days. Uh, The world has labels for everything. But uh, actually some mental illness, not all, but some could certainly be demon possession. We see it. The world has its psychological definitions even for kids. But they deny the spiritual reality and they focus on their own worldly wisdom, which as James would say is earthly, natural, and demonic. You know the labels. I'm not going to say them. They're the labels and you see somebody that's like something's really wrong and it's more than just what we see Naturally. So here's the scene. Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the mountain. And, and in the midst of the crowd, there are some scribes arguing with the disciples. And evidently, it's about the fact that they couldn't cast out the demon in this boy. And in their midst, the dad cries out for mercy on the Lord. Okay? And then he says, I brought him to your disciples, back in Matthew, verse 16, and they could not cure him. They should have been able to cure him. Remember what we saw in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus summoned the twelve. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every sickness. He gave them the authority to do it. They had the authority to do it. Now, on a side note, we only see in Scripture Jesus casting out demons, his disciples, and the early church when the, when the word was being affirmed by the miraculous. We don't see it after that point. And nowhere in Scripture are we told to cast out demons in the church. Nowhere are we to do that. And if you recognize the end of Mark as an addition, as I'll talk about later, of those, those things, nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to cast out demons, you see, the way someone who is possessed by demon gets delivered is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how one is delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So then, the scribes are apparently attempting to discredit Jesus because of the failure of his disciples in doing what he had given them outright authority to do, and people knew it, and people knew it. And the same thing happens to us. We're given the direct authority and responsibility to do certain things and trust the Lord. And yet we fail in those things. Whether it's at school or at work or at church with our families, marriage, raising children. And when we fail, the consequences can be great. The stakes are high because the world is looking. They're looking for a reason to discredit the Jesus that you say you trust so that they can cover up their sin and continue in their way. Spiritual stakes are high. So we have a boy being tormented. Apparently attempting, this demon's attempting to kill him. It throws him in the fire. It's trying to kill him, by the way. Fire and water, tragic scene. And this poor boy must have been severely scarred, by the way. An absolute satanic mess. And so what happens at this point? After being partitioned by the desperate dad, Jesus rebukes the crowd, the dad, and casts out the demon. Notice what he says here. Verse 17 of Matthew It says, and Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Now, there's some different biblical viewpoints out there. Or not biblical, but viewpoints from different teachers. Some I would disagree with. they saying that, that Jesus is rebuking his disciples. I don't believe that's the case here. Because later on, they're going to ask, why couldn't we do it? He didn't rebuke them. He'll share why. I believe he's rebuking the unbelieving and perverted generation. That's the crowd. And he also rebukes the dad, as we will say. He's rebuking the crowd and the scribes because they are mocking Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Again, Jesus, I don't believe, is rebuking the disciples. He doesn't say to his disciples that they are unbelieving. He says, you had little faith. Now, the New King James, we'll see, has an error there, I believe, when they say it in their notes. They say unbelieving, but it actually says little faith. Later on, I'll point that out. These disciples are not unbelieving. They have little faith. So he is talking to the multitude. The multitude who have no faith. Who have no faith. And he is reproving them. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. They're unbelieving and perverted. As we've seen before, they've rejected Christ. They've seen the miracles, they've heard the truth. They have not repented of their sins. They become hardened in their hearts. And now they desire to destroy him. And later on, even the people would say, crucify him. Same thing. And folks, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, or you're playing games with him, doing it your way, whatever it might be, rather than his way, he says you're unbelieving and perverted. Your thinking and your actions are twisted because you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, he will only put up with you for a little while. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He's been there two and a half years sharing the truth of their sinfulness and need of him. Two and a half years, in their midst, performing miracles, revealing he is the Son of God. <coughs> They've rejected it. Now, evidently, the Lord here is also maybe yearning for his previous glory. Remember what happened just a few moments before? He was on the mountain, and he was glorified in front of his disciples. How long shall I be with you? This is getting weary to me. How long shall I put up with you? Well, we're going to see it wasn't much longer. It wasn't much longer. And folks, you don't want the Lord God saying that to you. How long shall he put up with you who've rejected him? How long shall I put up with you? How many years have you heard the truth? How long should I put up with you? Yet God is a gracious God, and he is not willing that any should perish. But if you reject him, there will be a time where he doesn't put up with you anymore. Unbeliever, there's not much time left. Confess your unbelief and perverted ways. And turn to Christ before it's too late. Before it's too late, before he says, how long will I put up with you? So back in our passage, uh, take a look. Let's look at Mark again. Notice the reproof includes the dad also. includes the dad also. Mark chapter 9, verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Very concerning. Stay away from those demonic things. Trust in Jesus Christ, kids. And it often throws him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. To destroy him. And then notice what he says. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And What does Jesus say back to him? And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. He reproves the dead. If you can, if you can. Now, don't take this uh, statement wrongly. All things are possible to him who believes, like the false teachers would say, who propagate wicked faith doctrines that say, if you just have faith, you can do whatever you want. That's not what he saying. All things that are God's will and his way are possible to him who believes. Everything in the sphere of God's will and his desire is possible, not in your desire or in my desire. Sometimes we should be ashamed. We are like this man. We say to the Lord, if you can. We should understand you can. We know you can. If it's your will, would you do so? If it's your will. We know. Not if you can If you are willing, you can do it, if you are willing. And on a side note, we need to recognize that uh, a lack of faith at times grieves our Lord. He is all-powerful, holy, just, right, true, faithful, kind, merciful, and loving, who gave himself for us, and we don't trust him. Really? I can safely say I believe our lack of faith grieves him with sin. And Jesus said to him, if you can, it's emphatic. Notice the the exclamation point there. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Folks, we need to realize, as we'll see today, faith is not simply believing the facts, as we're going to see. Faith also believes and relies on the God who said it. The God who said it. I can believe truth of what Jesus says, but I don't believe him personally. Something's wrong. So back to our passage. Immediately, and I love this response, by the way. This is wonderful. Verse 24 in the book of Mark, chapter 9. Immediately the boy's father cried out and and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that great? That is wonderful. He says, I do believe, but I don't believe. (laughs) Help my unbelief. And oh, that is the prayer the Lord will answer. Some of you are in this state right now, you're not sure. You're not absolutely sure about Jesus, whatever it might be, but you think he might be able to save you. I do believe, help me in my unbelief. God's a good God, and let's do that prayer. Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus. Ask him to open your eyes to help you in your unbelief. And we need to do that too. Now, I'm not talking about believing that he'll do what we think he should do. That's not true. That's just spiritual adultery, as we'll see. When we pray for our own will, that's spiritual adultery. When we pray for his will, then we know that we have the answer from him in his time and in his way, if it's his will. You see, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. He says, if you can, Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And the boy's father cried out immediately, saying, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's what we need to be doing to Jesus. Help me in my unbelief. Help me. Now, still in Mark, notice what happens. The Lord vindicates himself because the scribes were discrediting Jesus. Your disciples couldn't cast him out. Then They were, they were discrediting him in the context of this man who, who shared that. Now, Jesus is going to vindicate himself here. Still in mark nine verse twenty five and when the crowd was rapidly gathering, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, "You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, and do not enter him again and After crying out and throwing him in a terrible in, in terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became uh, so he was So he much, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. It's amazing. Now, as I shared before, that's Mark. Now, Matthew's point is actually a lesson for the disciples. And the issue is not the demoniac. That's why there's more in Mark about that. But in Matthew, notice back in Matthew, it's about faith. It's about faith. Notice Matthew 17, verse 18. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. No problem for God in human flesh to take care of Satan and demons. Not a problem at all. Greater is he who's in you than he is in the world. Not even an issue. Only only, Only Jesus can deliver you from Satan, by the way. Only Jesus can deliver you. You see, if you try to deliver yourself, you can sweep the house out with religion, okay? But you're only in a much worse satanic mess. The reality is everybody apart from Christ is held by Satan captive to do his will, and it's only Christ who delivers us from Satan. Let me share a few verses. You can turn if you like. Second Timothy 2, verse 24. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, notice this, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. It's repentance that opens the door for deliverance from Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 26, let's turn to Acts 26. This is the apostle Paul giving his testimony of when Jesus saved him. And from that we see a very important principle about darkness and light. Acts twenty six fifteen. This is Paul, or was Saul at that time, Saul of Tarsus, responding to the Lord after he had blinded him on the road to Damascus. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet, Acts 26, uh, 15, 16 now, but arise and stand on your feet for the purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister, the word servant there, by the way, and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now notice this, this is the important part. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. I'm sending you, Paul, and share the gospel, obviously, that they would turn from darkness to light and be delivered. Be delivered. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So here we have Jesus delivering this poor boy from the demon that tormented him, trying to kill him often. And we see Jesus is vindicated as he casts out the demon. So how can we who want to obey uh, the Lord, uh, how can we, those who know him, uh, keep from failing in the things we know he has called us to do? How can we do so? Well, notice we're going to learn here about faith. Notice we're going to realize that faith is manifest in this situation in dependent prayer. And sometimes we can believe something, but we don't have a genuine faith that depends on the Lord in the situation. That's a big difference. Back to uh, Matthew 17. And I'm going to read up through our portion here. And when they came to the multitude, verse 14, came to the multitude, a man came up falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and very ill, for he often falls in the fire and often in the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus said answered and said oh unbelieving perverted generation how long shall i be with you how long shall i put up with you bring him here to me and jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once look at verse 19 then the disciples came to jesus privately and said why could we not cast it out why couldn't we do what you gave us the authority to do why couldn't we do what you said we would be able to do when you gave us the authority to do so? And he said, because of the littleness of your faith. Now, we're going to see what that means in a minute. Because of the littleness of your faith. The term littleness of your faith comes from the Greek words oligopistian. Basically, it means poverty of faith or littleness It speaks of that which is limited or deficient. It's deficient. There's faith, but it's deficient. Now, this is where I need to make you aware of a textual issue. In the New King James, they say because of your unbelief, and that's absolutely wrong. They have apistian, which means negates it. And yet they honestly inform you in the notes, little faith. And anytime there's anything like that, the translations are, are, are very honest in saying, well, most manuscripts say this he says here, because of the littleness of your faith. Their faith was deficient. Well, how is it deficient? How is it that our faith can be deficient at times? We believe the truth. We actually go out and do (coughs) what God says. We believe the truth. Remember back in Matthew 6, Jesus said, You can't serve two masters, God and money. So don't be anxious for what you'll eat and drink. And then he illustrates it about father's, the father's care to feed the birds, clothing the flowers of the field, and aren't we worth much more? And then he says, you men of little faith, little faith. Trust the Lord to provide for your daily realities, right? In chapter 8, when the storm came upon the disciples, Jesus was in the boat sleeping, and he said to them after they came to him, why are you timid, you men of little faith? He's right there in your midst. And then we saw this last time, where Jesus came walking on the water, and Peter got out of the boat and went towards Jesus, but began to doubt and sink. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? He got his eyes off of Jesus on the storm, right? Speaking of deficient faith, now here we're going to see that one element of deficient faith is a lack of prayers. We're going to see one element of deficient faith. So here, notice our passage here, back in Matthew 17. He says, and he said to them, because of the little is your faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. And then notice this is in italics, by the way, but this kind does not go out except from prayer and fasting. Now, again, your Bibles are very honest in their translations. If it's in italics, it's saying this is maybe not in the original portion, whatever it might be. And what we had was overzealous scribes who saw it maybe in another gospel, and they added that in there, and it's very clear that that was that that way. But one part Mark does affirm in this. In the book of Mark, verse 28, I'm going to read it for you. And when he had come into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind, speaking of the demon, cannot come out by anything but prayer. The implication is they didn't pray. They didn't pray. They were walking through doing what God had said they could do. They were trusting the Lord. They believed that truth, but their faith was deficient as we will see, they didn't pray. They didn't pray. That's a manifestation of deficient faith, by the way. When we believe the truth about you, we know it's true, we believe it, but we don't prayerfully depend upon the Lord. It is a manifestation of deficient faith, by the way. It's a manifestation. Evidently, they were no longer praying, trusting the Lord in the midst of this, in a sense. They just believed God and said they could do it, so they were doing it. Stepping out, just doing and serving in their own strength, in a sense. And God would not allow it to work. Praise Him. Isn't that great? Praise Him. And He does that to us too, by the way. He puts a roadblock in the way to show you, hey, I'm here. They're just doing ministry. Folks, prayer reveals an absolute dependence on the living God. And there's no way we can serve, obey, and trust Him in our lives if we're not dependently praying pray. When we don't pray, it reveals we're not depending on the Lord. We're not truly trusting in him in that sense. We may believe the truth, but our faith is deficient. We may believe in the God of the truth that he said this and this can happen and this is what he said, I believe that, but we need to depend on him and trust in him. And evidently the disciples were attempting to cast out demons without praying. They weren't trusting or relying on the Lord. What did Jesus say in John 15? Let's go to John 15. It's a good lesson for us. The Lord is never going to leave you nor forsake you. He's going to uh, protect your mind. Like if you're worried and you, you pray and give it over him, he'll guard your mind in Christ Jesus. All kinds of promises we have in his word, but sometimes they don't seem to be fulfilled. Maybe we're not depending on him as evidenced by prayer. John 15, 1. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it, that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide, that means rest, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Colossians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We're not adequate, but he is adequate. Lord God, I'm not adequate, but you are adequate. I trust you to help me. Help me do what you've called me to do. Help me to obey you in these areas. Help me to do exactly what you said. Lord, it's not going to happen unless you interject and you intervene. Lord God. So then these disciples believed God. They went out and evidently tried to do it. They believed what God said, but they did not pray. They did not pray. And oh, how much empty service and ministry goes on according to the will of God, but with deficient faith where people are not personally in their heart of hearts depending upon the Lord in the context of prayer in everything they do. Let me ask you this, believer, do you pray? Is prayer an integral reality of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you pray about everything? Have a conversation with the Lord as, you, as you're walking along? Disciples failed to pray and their faith was little. Let me ask you this, mothers and fathers, you know God's will for raising your kids. You know what he says. You believe he'll do that, but yet in real time, do you depend upon him as evidenced by prayer? You homeschool, you trust Jesus, you know what to do. You're raising him up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But do you continually pray that he would enable you to do it exactly how he desires? At work, you know you're to do your work hardly unto the Lord and not unto men. Do you trust him to help you as you work? Do you pray about your job or just go to work? How about how you serve around here? Do you pray? We should be totally dependent in prayer in everything we do, and everything we do. And maybe much of failure at times is because uh, we have little and deficient faith, as evidenced by lack of prayer. Notice, Jesus further explains this, and it's a very interesting explanation. It's very misunderstood, but I think we can understand the intent here. Notice what he says here. This is verse 19 again. Disciples came to Jesus privately saying, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness or the deficiency of your faith. You got faith, but it's deficient. For truly I shall say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, You shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, And nothing shall be impossible to you. So Jesus has got his disciples privately, And they ask him about why they couldn't do it, And he begins an explanation. Now, you say that explanation doesn't help me very much. I admit it seems a little more confusing on the surface than maybe helpful. Jesus says, just reprove them for the littleness of their faith. And then he says, but if you had faith, as the smallest of the seed. If you had even a smaller faith. <laughs> doesn't make sense, does it? There's got to be something else about this. Reprove them that their faith was small, yet, yet you have a small faith it couldn't do it, but if you had a faith incredibly small like a mustard seed, you could do it. That doesn't make sense. Well, this contradiction disappears when we understand the idea of this mustard seed as we saw earlier in Matthew 13. Turn to Matthew 13 for a second. When we understand what he means by that, it, the contradiction goes away, by the way. Matthew 13:31. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. It's the smallest. But when the seed is, when it's full grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so all the birds, the air nest, and the branches. And you might remember when we looked at that a long time ago, that it starts out the smallest, but if it persists, it becomes the biggest. It persists. It endures. Brother and sister, tiny faith that is genuine doesn't stay tiny if it's persistent. It grows and expands. Persistent in prayer, persistent believing in what He's said. Let me show you an example of this together in the context of prayer. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And we'll get to the moving mountain thing before we're finished. Don't worry about that. Luke 18. Now, this is the Lord Jesus speaking here, or Luke speaking of the Lord Jesus, and he'll quote him. Now, he, that's speaking of Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. This is the reason why he shares it, that at all times you ought to pray and not lose heart. He's going to give a parable saying there was a certain city judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Hey, That sounds like our system right now, doesn't it? <laughs> And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for, a while he was unwilling, uh, f- and for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God and respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. Now remember, Jesus is giving the parables that we should pray always and not lose heart. And he says here, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not the God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he not delay over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? If this unrighteous judge can be persuaded by persistence, how much more a righteous judge to do what is right? Don't give up in your prayer. Don't give up. Persist. Jesus said, He said this so that you would persist in prayer. And prayer is an evidence of trusting the Lord. It's an evidence. So then, now I want to point out another very important observation. So often uh, we look at the Lord, but if we don't we, we believe in Him, but we don't believe in Him. One other passage. Look at Mark eleven. And notice the tie between faith and prayer, but important part here is who that faith is in. Mark 11:22. And Jesus saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast on the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask and and believe that you have received them, and they shall be given to you, or granted to you. And you say, wait a second, moving mountains, all things, what is he talking about? Well, first of all, we need to recognize we have faith in God, have faith in God, personal faith, and that's going to be revealed in prayer, in prayer. If you really trust God, you're going to be praying. If you don't trust him, you're not going to be praying, just to be honest with you. If you really trust him, you're going to be praying, dependently. So back in Matthew 17, and let's get rid of the, let's not get rid of it, let's get an understanding of this uh, mountain portion. He says, For truly I say to you, in uh, the middle of 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible. Now, folks, this cannot be speaking of moving literal mountains. It can't be, because Jesus never moved a literal mountain. He's the author and perfecter of faith. Not one of his disciples ever moved a mountain. Not one. So what is he talking about? Well, if you were a Jew, historically speaking at this time, you would know exactly what he is saying. There was a Jewish figure of speech, an idiom, an expression... When someone was a mover of mountains, that's what it was called, they were those who overcame great difficulties. That's what he's talking about. If someone was called a mover of mountains, at that time it was one who overcame great difficulties. That's what he's talking about. If you're a Jew, you would understand what he's saying, how he's using that idiom. So I believe Jesus is using a common figure of speech, That if you have tiny faith, so small, but yet it persists in me, it persists, like the mustard seed example, even though it's small, it persists. You pray and trust, you will overcome obstacles and nothing will be impossible for you. In the context of God's will, by the way. He's not saying anything you want, you pray about, you're going to get. Look in James chapter 4. You don't get because you pray with the wrong motives to spend it on your own desires. That's wrong. That's spiritual adultery. It's spiritual adultery, and it's very evil to take this passage and start claiming it to your own desires. It's very evil. Or even taking it and kind of making your own desires religious and claiming it, whatever it might be. But here, when we persist in faith, we believe it. We continually go to the Lord. We continually pray, like that picture of that woman with the unrighteous judge. How much more will the righteous God respond keep praying tremendous reality you see we need to trust him in what he says but we need to bring our hearts before him he says no temptation has come across you except that which is common to man and god is faithful who will provide a way of escape that you may endure it we need to pray and trust him he says that's a fact you can know that's true you can know that's his will and you can know that if you pray and depend on him he's going to deliver you from temptation And any other promises we see here. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You see, prayer just takes pride completely out of the picture. That's what it does. And man's problem is pride, by the way. So then how can we keep from failing in what God calls us to do? We need to be dependently praying, trusting in Christ, persisting in enduring in faith believing what god has said and believing in him what a tremendous lesson from the lord jesus how much do you prayerfully depend on the lord do you trust him as evidenced by prayer you may believe all the truth you may believe every you believe everything there's no problem with that do you depend upon him as evidenced in prayer Today, we've seen the reality of cruel demonic possession. And if you're a non believer, that should have scared you to death because that's the sphere in which you're held captive right now. Because of your sin, you are open to Satan's influence. But Jesus can deliver you from darkness to light if you humble yourself and repent. And He will. And you'll receive His Spirit, and you can never be indwelt. You can never be uh, led or influenced by that. You can be uh, tempted. But greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. Now, what about uh, those of you who are in between? You believe, but you don't believe. Help me in my unbelief, Lord God. Help me. What about us, brothers and sisters? How can we keep from failing in the areas in which he has called us to trust in him and obey? We need to recognize, first of all, when we don't do it, there's great shame brought to his name. Secondly, we need to realize that simple faith is not simply believing the facts, but also we rely on the God who said them. And third, our faith should grow and persist and endure, and that will be done in the context of dependent prayer on the Lord. What a lesson. If we have faith, even as the smallest mustard seed, even smaller than a grain of sand, it will persist. If it persists, it will grow And whatever God calls us to do, whatever he's declared to be true, we will be able to do by his power and strength if we rely on him and what he said. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, forgive us. Our faith is so deficient at times. And we need to be reminded, Lord God, so that we confess that we are corrected by you and that we're made straight again and that we're trained, Lord God. Help us to see where we are deficient in our trust in you. That we would rely on you. That we would be persistent in prayer and not give up. But know that you will answer according to your will in your time for your glory. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.